Chronicles chapter 30. Second Chronicles chapter 30. It was the first time she had stepped foot in a church building in over 30 years. Kathy was baptized into Christ as a teenager, but that spiritual high was short-lived. Some would say, then life happened. But the more truthful statement is her sins accumulated like a seemingly never-ending series of dominoes. Kathy had more sexual partners than we can count on fingers and toes. And if there was a drug out there, she had tried it. And with some drugs, she had more than just tried. She had stolen in her lifetime more than she had earned. And she had spent more time living on the streets or in a prison cell than in a home of her own. There once was a kingdom that was united. Kings David and Solomon then presided. But after a fight, they were known henceforth as Judah in the south, Israel to the north. More than 200 years passed by up there, and when it comes to God, Israel don't care. They were cold and lost for a really long time. So it's no surprise as we continue this rhyme that Assyria came and took down that nation till just a few remained on location. A pathetic remnant was all that endured. But there's more to the story, rest assured. For somewhere in Judah, I'm not a liar, a king from the south had a desire to draw near to God, to reach for much higher. His name, don't forget it, was Hezekiah. The king wanted worship of God restored, and he saw the Passover had been ignored. So he sent out letters from the most to the least that all must come and join in the feast. It would be just fine if it was a month late. We got breaking news. We have got an update. Hezekiah did not just invite his own, but letters were sent out from his throne, even to them living way up there, up in Israel. But would they even care? As it turns out, many did not. They laughed, they scorned, and they mocked. But there were a few of the remaining who saw the good that comes from regaining a relationship with the one true God. So what I tell you now is not a facade. Just a few of them were not like the others. They decided to join their long-lost brothers for the Passover feast and whatever was next. But to find out what, we must read from the text. Second Chronicles chapter 30, starting in verse 16. At Passover, the priests and Levites took their accustomed posts according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests threw the blood that they received from the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. 
Therefore, the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. The offerer, or the common worshiper, somebody like you and me, was supposed to kill the Passover lamb at the beginning of a line of priests that extended from the outer court of the temple to the altar. The blood would then be caught in a basin, passed down the line, and thrown at the base of the altar. But many of these common worshipers who had come to Jerusalem were unclean, with the majority of them coming from, unsurprisingly, those northern tribes where things had been really messed up for quite some time, tribes like Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun. And you could be unclean for a multitude of reasons, some of which are not fit for sophisticated conversation, but it could be something like touching a dead body. Rather than defile their offering, defile the priests, defile the altar, and defile the temple itself with their uncleanness, the Levites, as we read in the text, the Levites stepped in for the unclean worshipers and killed their Passover lambs for them. Sounds like a good idea to me. Let's keep reading. Picking up in verse 18. For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. Yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. It was the first time she had stepped foot in a church building in over 30 years. Eventually, finally, Kathy woke up, and she determined in her heart that it was time to get right. So, when an old high school friend invited her to church, Kathy decided to go. She walked in the doors on that Sunday morning with short shorts and a tank top. At times during the worship service, she would raise her hands to the sky. She even started clapping during one of the songs. When it came time for the Lord's Supper, she ate the bread and drank the juice before the second prayer had been offered. And during the preacher's sermon, she would routinely shout amen or other random exclamations. She then went forward at the invitation, and before the elder could share the news of her recommitment to Christ, Kathy herself stood up from the front row and told her story for a couple of awkward minutes. After all, it was the first time she had stepped foot in a church building in over 30 years, and it showed. Kathy's story is my attempt to help you understand what we're dealing with when it comes to some of these folks from the northern kingdom who are at Passover in Jerusalem. Like Kathy, they got histories, let me tell you. And like Kathy, their worship, it, it was... A little bit of a mess, to be honest. 
But there are several lessons that I have learned from studying and reflecting on the text before us. I would like to share them with you this morning, starting with lesson number one. I learned that it is within the realm of possibility, within the realm of possibility for God in his grace to forgive those who seek him otherwise than as prescribed and not according to the rules. Kelsey, my wife, calls me into the dining room, and as I enter, I'm surprised to see a projector and a PowerPoint presentation prepared. I know this will be trouble. Kelsey then proceeds to show me three slides. The first is a picture of me gingerly walking back to the hotel after three holes at Disney's Lake Buena Vista Golf Course when I injured my back. The second is me on the couch with a heating pad after I again hurt my back, bending over to pick up my golf clubs before the round even started. And the third is, most notoriously, a close-up of my dislocated kneecap after a swing went horribly wrong last February. Kelsey then gives her closing statement. Craig, as you can see, you always get hurt when you go golfing, so I think it's best that you no longer play for the rest of your life. That's not fair, I reply. You just picked the examples that you wanted to pick. There are other times that I haven't gotten injured playing golf. I'll tell you what you are. You, you, Kelsey, you, you are a cherry picker. Kelsey then stands from her seat and raises her voice. How dare you call me that? Call me someone who only selects evidence to support a position while withholding evidence that would go against it. You, sir, have gone too far. Kelsey then angrily stomps out of the room as I sit smugly, knowing that I have won this fictitious argument, only invented for the purposes of this sermon. That's the great thing about preaching is you can just do that as you need to. But the truth is, the truth is I'm guilty as a cherry picker as well, sometimes intentionally and sometimes ignorantly. Even worse, I've done so not with the ways of golf, but with the ways of God. Among my most egregious offenses is the presentation I give you now, not of three slides, but of three people who did not do as prescribed and what God did as a result. As read in the scripture reading, persons one and two, Nadab and Habihu, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, and they died. And then person number three is Uzzah. He who put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, and the Lord struck him down because of his error. Nadab, Abihu, and Uzzah. These are my three examples, carefully chosen, in order to stress compliance with every single prescription and rule. And I conclude, quote, It is therefore clear, if for whatever reason, and in any way you stray from what is authorized or prescribed, you will be destroyed by God, end quote. Only this here is not some fictitious presentation. It's a real lesson I myself have taught and preached. However, what do we find in the text before us? We observe unclean people eating the Passover otherwise than as prescribed, not according to the sanctuary's rules, yet they're not obliterated. They're not incinerated. 
they are pardoned and they are healed. Pardoned and healed. But come on, Craig, you say, a lot of these folks had never even celebrated a Passover before. They were so, 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 so far from God. It's just amazing that God, to, that, that they were even there in the first place, to be honest. And so it's no surprise that God gives them a break because their situation is so different. And I respond, you are exactly right. Their situation is different. Every situation is unique. And I see from this text that it's, it's best just to leave all of it up to the just judge and to the marvelous grace and goodness of our God who is the only one who understands all of the intricacies of every unique situation. I am not saying that God's commandments are not great. I am not saying that God's commandments are not important. Make sure you hear that. But what I'm also saying is this, God's grace is pretty great and pretty important too. Lesson number two, I learned that some can be drawing near to God with the proper heart, even though they may not do as prescribed. Years ago, I would see the praise team at this church over here, or I would learn that women pass trays for the Lord's Supper at that church over there. And in order to make some sense of it all in my mind, or just to feel better about my condemnation of them, I would reason myself, well, obviously all their hearts are evil, twisted, and really messed up. They are intentionally deceiving others, and they are all covert agents of the devil himself. And this type of thinking was just easier. I could just take the whole lot of them, put them in the back corner room of my mind, then close the door, lock it, and throw away the key. It was just easy. It was a, a convenient coping mechanism. But it was wrong. I was wrong. Only the Spirit of God can see into the hearts of men and women. And as confusing, as frustrating, as nonsensical, as just plain hard as it might be for some of us to wrap our heads around this, try to get it. It's possible for someone to have a truly prepared and intentionally set heart in approaching God, but yet do so not as prescribed. After all, Hezekiah believed it was happening right in front of him. That there were those who had, the text says this, had set their hearts to seek God, but just hadn't done everything right. And one more thing. I think another common misunderstanding goes a little something like this. Yeah, yeah, they might have the right heart, but if they're not doing as prescribed, they're worshiping a way different God than the one I serve. Some kind of false god. They're, they're nothing, nothing more than idolaters. And I think Hezekiah would strongly disagree with that. Look again at his prayer in verses 18 and 19. May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his hearts to seek. Get ready, here it comes. God, the Lord, the God of his fathers. Three titles, rapid fire. God, the Lord, the God of his fathers. Elohim, Jehovah, the Elohim of his fathers. Hezekiah is driving home that, yes, 
There are those there with set hearts to worship the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they have not done as prescribed. He doesn't dismiss them as idolaters. In fact, he sees them as those who have, by God's grace, finally turned away from idolatry to, yes, indeed, worship the Lord God. So all I'm saying is this. This is all I'm saying in this point. Let's just be careful with easy, convenient assumptions about the hearts of people. Lesson number three. I learned that I should more often seek the role of intercessor instead of opponent. On one side, we may have the righteous, holy, just, and avenging God. And on the other side, we have the people who have seriously sinned. My position has too often been either to stand next to God and, and say, let's go get them, let's bring down the thunder, or to stand behind God with my hands shoved in his back saying, all right, how much longer are you going to wait? Are we going to get to this or what? Please, are you sleeping? It's time to wake up and strike them down. Those two postures over here. And maybe there's a time in our lives or across eternity for those. You look at the Psalms of David crying out to God, a persistent widow pleading for justice, or hear the loud voices of those slain under the altar in Revelation. But this here, this position is what I might call opponent. However, I think some of the most respected biblical figures have taken a serious different position, and that is of standing between, in the middle, between God and those who seriously sin. They're in the middle, pleading for God's mercy as intercessors. Abraham takes that position in the middle, asking God to spare the wicked city of Sodom, if but ten righteous can be found within its gates. Moses dares to stand in the middle while the wrath of the Lord God desires to consume all of Israel at the sight of a golden calf. Ah, one might say, but what if those sinners over there have not only wronged God, but viciously attacked you? Will you still intercede for them? Will you really keep standing in the middle? Well, Jesus does that very thing. As he hangs betwixt, holy heaven and wicked earth. Upon the cross he pleads, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And his servant Stephen, while being pummeled with the stones of a mob, likewise calls out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Are you willing? Are you willing to stand in the middle to plant your feet in the footprints of Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Stephen? Now, just so we're clear, standing in the middle, it's more than just position. It's also direction. Too often, we think about defending the honor of God and his word. So we turn and we face the sinners. Everything is about 
what we will speak and do to them, preach to them, correct them, encourage them, or on the not-so-nice side of the spectrum, condemn them, belittle them, talk trash about them. But notice all these examples, Abraham, Moses, Stephen, Jesus, and even Hezekiah here. The intercessor does not direct his or her words and actions at the people, but rather at God. Brothers and sisters, it's time we turn around. And this leads to this final lesson. I learn again from Hezekiah about the amazing power of prayer. I learn again from Hezekiah about the amazing power of prayer. In our main text, Hezekiah sees a problem among the people. And standing essentially in the middle, he turns and he prays to God. I mean, have you ever in your life prayed a prayer anything like this one of Hezekiah's? Please pardon them, Father, those who with real and authentic hearts worship you, but may not do so exactly as you desire. Please forgive them. Please heal them. That right there is a prayer I don't pray. But the sad truth is that there are a lot of prayers I just don't pray. Maybe because I don't care about others or love them like I should. Or maybe because I predetermined that there are things that God just doesn't do, especially nowadays. The truth is that Hezekiah's life, not just this instance, his life is a testimony to the working power of God through prayer. Exhibit A, the Assyrian army that took down Israel to the north looks to do the same to Judah at the south. But Hezekiah prays. And the Lord hears. And Hezekiah awakes the next morning to find the angel of the Lord has struck down 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. Exhibit B, Hezekiah becomes sick. He's going to die, according to Isaiah the prophet. But Hezekiah prays, and the Lord hears, granting the king 15 more years of life. And Exhibit C is the powerful text before us, another not-so-good situation. If the examples of Nadab and Uzzah and, and Abihu are teaching us anything, but Hezekiah prays, verse 20, look at it, and the Lord again hears. Among these exhibits, we have prayers for himself, for others, and for the nation as a whole, all answered. Among these exhibits, we have prayers related to warfare, personal health, and spiritual matters, all answered. No wonder Paul tells us to bring everything to the Lord in prayer and supplication. No wonder Peter encourages us to cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Prayer is truly amazing because our God is truly amazing. In closing, if we take away all the people from this account, Hezekiah, the priests, the Levites, the northern tribes, and we just focus on the one who matters, on the Lord God, what do we learn about him? I think it's that he's good. He's gracious. He's forgiving. And he is seemingly chomping at the bit to welcome us back in spite of our ignorance and our imperfections. 
that he will immediately run to embrace us if he sees even the faintest glimpse of us coming home from over that hill in the far country. He's watching, he's waiting, he's anticipating, even if it's been a really long time since we were last with him. From this text, I learned that he will accept me where I'm at, where you're at right now, that even though we come to him unclean, he's able to do what it takes to make us clean again. Just as Hezekiah made sure to send invitations to everyone. The invitation this morning is open to everyone as well. If we can serve you, if you have any need, come to God this morning as together we stand and sing. Would you live for Jesus and be always pure and good? Would you walk with him within the narrow road? Would you have him bear your burden, carry all your load? Let him have his way with thee. His power can make you what you ought to be. His blood can cleanse your heart and make Craig. Just a moment, we're going to sing number 756, 756, and we'll be uh, dismissed in prayer. If you have the opportunity, please come back and be with us this evening uh, for worship at uh, 6 o'clock. Number 756. <clears throat>
Sing the first and last verse. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus, sing his mercy and his grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, he'll prepare for us a place when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Father, God of all truth, God of all love, we come before you at the end of this service with a heart of gratitude, thankful for this time and the ability we've had to assemble and worship you. As you well know, we come before you as a people full of faults. God, we ask for your grace and your forgiveness. But despite these faults, we ask that you accept our worship as an offering of the first fruits of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. God, as we interact with those around us, grant us a heart full of grace and love and understanding as we personally seek to better understand your will, but also as we advocate for our fellow man that we may bring others closer to you. God, we know the power of prayer. We thank you for this avenue that we can come before you to the source of all power. As we leave this place, may we leave with a greater measure of your truth, your grace, and your love. And we bring this to you through your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.